Everybody, welcome to another installment of Show to View with Mike G, the show of life, the show of rum, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., the fresh mode, and Tiki. Yes, that's right. Today's guest is the a man of Tiki, the author of Smuggler's Cove, Exotic Cocktails, Rum, and the Cult of Tiki, Mr. Martin Kate. He was in town just a few weeks ago for Texas Tiki Week talking about the cultural impact of Tiki, not just the cocktail impact of tiki something much larger than just rum and blended fruit juices something much bigger polynesian funk if you will so we talk about a lot of different things talk about martin's new book we talk about the 80s goth rock the cure so many great nuggets here so without further ado i hope you guys enjoy this great chat with martin kate Tune out. It became a, it became a kind of a 1950s fascination. Um, there was a even a, a uh, there was even a TV show. Wait, a TV? Was, well, there was a pilot. Never, okay. and it was called The Beachcomber, and it was really it was all about a, a stressed out ad executive in San Francisco, actually, who just dreams of chucking it all. This idea of he was just look out the window of his office. and yeah. he hated his boss, and he hated the stress of his nine to five, and he just thought. I wonder if I could just make this work collecting coconuts on the beach. Man, it's and a it really thing. that really um, uh, illustrated a lot of people's beliefs at that time, or feelings at that time of this. You know, the tiki bar on the corner was that place you could go to where it was always twilight, yeah. where there was always some gentle music playing, a soft babble of water, a wonderland, a wonderland, yeah, where you could say. You, and I guarantee you that thousands and thousands of sort of mai tai fueled fantasies were born in tiki bars throughout the 1950s where someone would be sipping it and saying, you know, what if I just left? What if I just got away, hung it up and just went and, and, and just wandered the beach, collected shells. Yeah. Cause I, I think that, and I think that fantasy spoke to people really powerfully in the 1950s and does well, and today it, as well. Well, and that's the red scare, right? That too. You had to get to, uh, with so much of it, as we were talking about social just a moment ago, so much all the time everybody yeah. pointing fingers tiki again maybe it was a savior of sorts it is it's a it's a, uh, it's a beacon and it's you know it's a it's a, it's it's a respite from oh someone said uh this quote i liked is they called it the um tiki bars with the bomb shelters of the atomic age so not only yeah, was your job stressful you know your suburban house the kids are home screaming you know you don't want to go home and and you just think god if i just i'll just have a cocktail but of course the same thing is that existential threat of nuclear annihilation which is hanging over everybody throughout the cold war and funny here we are again um and uh with this every 50 years yeah apparently so i mean but here we are again with you know this sort of threat of nuclear war or just you know tiki bars are again have that now more than ever quality about them you know i really need to go somewhere where i can forget about things and so that's why we try to provide this space where there's no televisions and yeah. there's no and there's no windows. I don't want you to see. I don't want you to look out the window. I don't want you to see any traffic. I don't want to see like you might be hearing in the background right now. Right. Uh, I don't want you to see any tension. I don't want you to. Ideally, you'll just keep your damn phone in your pocket and just engage in human interaction. Do you think? Okay, here's a good yeah. question. So, or I'm giving myself credit, I guess, for it being a good question. Yeah, before this, before this is a brilliant idea. <laughs> I just had. <laughs> I'm pondering this. <laughs> so they are projects, right? So whether uh, we make a spirit, whether we make a movie, whether yeah. we write a book, mm-hmm. or whether we craft an aesthetic and experience right. at Smuggler's Cove, for uh-huh. instance, how much of that is you saying, this is how I think you should experience a cocktail? How much of it is prescriptive? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and all, uh, all of our spaces, you know, we don't make things look, they're not uh, cookie cutter because they're, they sort of tend to grow organically. Yeah. It's real artwork inside, and oh, things just sort of appear. So, 
but we are attempting to recreate what was a very popular recreational destination for Americans. An extraordinarily popular one yeah. in the 1950s. It's very easy to forget because so much of it was destroyed, but they were everywhere. There are tiki bars in every city of every size mm. across America. And because for whatever reason, the American fascination with the South Pacific, which really started in the 19th century, um, had a kind of a kind of a, a it was almost like a mass hypnosis over the population, you really? know, or the sense that that was whatever it is your whatever your ver- vision of paradise is, you know, whether it's uh, I'm at the top of the I'm at the top of the slopes and it's a perfect day and it's all fresh powder and I'm the only guy up on the hill, or whether it's you know uh, I'm alone on a I'm a, I'm on, I'm on I'm playing I'm a ninth hole I'm playing spyglass, whatever your vision of your perfect getaway is and everybody's is a little bit different for whatever reason in the 1950s in, in america it was very oftentimes it was commonly the south pacific i wonder why i mean i remember there's robert rogers and hammerstein there's mm-hmm. there's musicals what, what do you think besides trade and all that starts in the 19th century with 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 robert louis stevenson tales oh, of adventure okay, the south okay. pacific remains has this has this mystique as being paradise but also exciting also untamed or wild and there's a sense that that the south pacific is sort of the last bastion of 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 real adventure and Hmm. so we but we fall so we fall in love with that element but we also fall in love with the idea of it's a moonlit night and there's warm trade winds off the water and it's and it's the ultimate of relaxation and it's escape and it's a it's a rejection of the modern world it's a rejection of of industrialization it's a rejection of commercialism it's got this quality to people mistakenly think that people mistakenly and it's a common mistake but people tend to mistakenly think of tiki bars as as a celebration of colonialism when it's 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 not in the slightest yeah it's i mean it's a rejection of western ideas rather than suggesting that western ideas need to be brought everywhere right they're saying it's about it's about a sense of leaving it all behind saying how much can i strip out of my life how much what's the minimum i need in my life to survive and maybe all i really need is 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 a fresh coconut and a beach right so going back to that ah, it's not it doesn't have to be a fantasy but it is Mm -hmm. in a sense a fantasy of as you said a respite which is a beautiful word for going someplace else is it cruel ever (laughs) to provide such a beautiful experience that we just have to walk away from and kind of enter the real world again at <laughs> 2 a.m. One of the well, <laughs> it's uh, it's more pronounced when folks come in at happy hour, have a few, and yeah. then leave at seven, and it's still the sun's still up. Yeah, and they walk out of this dimly lit twilight bar, and then all of a sudden, the, the blazing sun, the bright light of day, blasts through the wall, and everyone goes, <laughs> squints up their eyes, and says, "Oh, it's still daylight." God, I had already, I thought already this went away already. Psychologically yeah. into my evening, and I didn't realize the sun was still out. Um. So, um, you know, <laughs> Americans... You see what I'm saying? Like, the duality of it, where you're yeah. providing this thing, and it's like, fuck, I really got to go back to work. You know, Americans in the 1950s, um, experiential dining what used to be incredibly popular in America. Yeah. Uh, whether it was your, 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 your Mexican restaurant that looked like an old sort of hacienda uh-huh. inside, uh-huh. or whether it was your German beer hall, or your Swiss fondue chalet sure. space, or whatever it is, Americans loved... Um, cultural immersion sort of dining experiences. Yeah. It, was a, it was kind of a, you know, like a brief ethnographic lesson in something else. Like yeah. you walked in and you learned something, you know, a very small part or very just a little sliver of another culture. People like that. I, I'm going to go to this German beer hall and everyone's wearing dirndls and lederhosen yeah. and, they're, you know, here's a big pretzel and things. I haven't learned about Germany. Or well, German you get culture. to dip your foot in, and you get to leave at your convenience. Yes, right? you just—it's—it's it's just a cultural, a brief cultural immersion, and so that this style of restaurant was incredibly popular, and there were lots of them all over the United States, and everything kind of fell out of favor because of the rise of the, sort of the relentless rise of modernism. Uh. This this notion, as modernism became very popular post-war. And aesthetically and sort of intellectually, this notion of casting aside artifice, of of of, of, of taking of, of throwing away that kind of those kind of themed experiences, you know, restaurants, bars, residential living, right. 
everything became very austere. Everything okay. became glass and steel and very puritanical, much, perhaps. It's not necessarily puritanical. It's just it's just we really fell for we really fell for that modernist aesthetic. Okay. And the modernist aesthetic hated artifice. So artifice and theme dining and things like that were relegated largely in America to the theme park. Right. For example, you know where the you know that's where you find the themed concept experience okay, okay so as you know today you go to most restaurants today and what do they look like they're hard tables hard chairs mm -hmm. naked light bulbs and um kind of stuffy and, sometimes well steel and glass well yeah. i mean they're just they're 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 designed to put the guests attention focus and interest not on their surroundings right. or frankly their comfort but into the food in front of them or the drink in their hand that becomes the obsession i see right? There's nothing else to look at in here. This is a plain steel table, and you're sitting on a plain steel bench, and the, we just have glass and steel. So just Instagram your food now. There's right. nothing else to see here. Would you say, could you say, yes. maybe it is egoism that uh, we're trying to divert attention to these things? Hey, look, that I've created this. Yep. <laughs> very much. Yeah. Very much. I, I, I don't want to tirade about this too long, but I do have some pretty strong feelings about how we design experiences for guests because I feel like... I feel like style is frequently chosen over comfort and of, of the guest that, that it, to me, it's more important that the, I, I'm going to put a, I'm just going to put this little metal bar stool on for you that is not comfortable because it looks cool. Yeah. It's got a nice sort of sleekness to it. Uh, I don't care if your butt hurts. It's probably for the best that your butt hurts because I need to turn tables yeah. anyway. Yeah, you know, if you write a New York Times food critic, not Pete Wells, but another one has written about this too in the sense that, like, I just don't feel like, I feel like I'm the afterthought. I feel like the tables are so close together. Right. I feel like the space is so loud. There's no sound dampening. There's a, you know, it's just, it's a cacophony of noise. Mm. And it's just, um, you know, that I feel like, you know, sometimes you feel like the operator just wants to just turn and burn. Right. And toss you Serve out. Serve themselves and not the people. Yeah. Like the, you know? I mean, so I'm really a big fan of upholstery. Yeah. Like padded bar stools and comfortable chairs and things like that and benches and things. There's some nice couches out here where we're yeah. sitting right now, but it, it's still, uh, you know, where I can sense, I could see that you could lounge and relax. But I, I just, I feel like that's a, um, sometimes that gets left behind. So. I think so. It's one of those things where... I think that you actually love people. Yes. They don't annoy you? Do you find yourself forgiving? Do you find yourself patient more than most? No. Oh. <laughs> staff would probably say, no, he's, a, <laughs> he's an angry man. <laughs> I, I, <coughs> you know, we, we fortunately are in a position, and because partly just because our guests are smarter and better educated, sure. know more about spirits than ever before, but also part of, you know, the kind of efforts we've taken to try to, you know, sell our concept. And you could call me bullheaded, but it was always really like, look, we've got this idea. Yeah. And we're going to, we're going to just, we got to make it work. We got to push it on to guests. We have to sell them on something that they maybe aren't going to be familiar with. Right. These are cocktails that are unfamiliar, spirits that are unfamiliar. So when the guest comes in, we have to hold their hand. We have to say, hi, how are you? Here's a menu. Let me present it to you because you're going to look at the back bar. You're going to see a bunch of unfamiliar things, and maybe you're going to just fall to a comfort zone. You're going to see all this stuff. You're going to say, ah, I'll, uh, just give me a gin and tonic, right. which is fine, of course. We'll make you a gin and tonic. But at the same time, I'd like to show you this menu. We work very hard at executing these drinks. We make all these custom ingredients, and we do this. And if you have any questions, let us know. But I would like you to drink this. This is what we're here for. Yeah. We do – so now – Nowadays, the guests are, and I guess partly because of that stubbornness on my part and, and just because, again, <laughs> largely, like I say, the guests are really, really well-informed sure. now. There's great outlets and magazines and newspapers talk about cocktails all the time, talk about spirits all the time. So that now there's a sense that when you come to Smuggler's Cove, you've made a conscious choice to go to a space for the experience we offer, and that's wonderful. Yeah. We do 94% sales uh, are from our drink menu or neat rums. Amazing. So 6% all other spirits, all beer, all wine, all non-alcoholic. It's just 6% of sales. Yeah. In other words, you know, the kind of proof of concept is there. People are coming in and saying, hey, let's grab some friends. Let's go have a volcano bolt at Smuggler's Cove. That's what you do there. That's why you go there. You right. don't go there to have... To, Gee, they only have one IPA. This selection is terrible. Yeah. You know, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah so you are off, you're offering an immersive 
We're offering an immersive experience that, and we want you to. So, back up a little bit. We've been trying to say, one of my big sort of missions or tirades is, has been to say, for years and years, the bar has been, the bar side of a restaurant or the bar itself has uh-huh. been, the expectation is that it needs to be everything to everyone. Sure. That every bar should have the same wide back bar of right. spirits that they should have, you know, we should always be able to get a Bloody Mary at any bar at any time. We should always be able to get a Cosmo at any bar at any time. And that's an expectation that's never placed on a restaurant. Nobody goes to the sushi bar and says, what do you mean you don't have burritos? Yeah, yeah. God damn it, I hate this place. So that, that, that expectation, restaurants have, surpa- have gone past that expectation. Everybody knows, what do you feel like tonight? I feel like Korean food tonight. Sure. Let's go eat Korean food tonight. Great. So what we're saying with the bar is let us focus on what let us focus on something like a Korean place focuses on Korean food. Let us focus on one thing right, right. and do it very well. That's kind of a new thing. So in our case that means being single spirit focused bar and a single cocktail style focused bar basically. Um, so I don't have any bloody mary mix. Yeah. I don't have any cranberry juice. Not real surprised. I can't. <laughs> I, I really can't. I guess I could. I guess we could make it. Yeah, I guess that'd be could. interesting. A cranberry yeah. tilted tiki. I mean, I haven't had one. But it's well, there's some. There's some drinks that have cranberry juice, but there wasn't enough for me to carry cranberry right, juice right. in an ongoing role. Um, most of our stuff predates the use of the of the blender. Right. So we have drink mixers, but we don't have blenders at Smuggler's Go. So people sometimes are a little surprised that they can't get a frozen drink. Right. Well, the frozen drink came much later. The drink mixer was there day one. And was the dominant tool for making these cocktails. So, so there's little things like that. So when you sort of stand now, it doesn't, and it doesn't even mean like, it doesn't even mean just that it's tiki or rum or another single spirit like gin, like Whitechapel. Right. But even a place like a modern craft cocktail bar, you know, a place like in San Francisco, I don't know, say a place like Trick Dog. Okay. Here's, you know, here's their curated menu. Here's the experience they want to offer. Here's what they're going to promote. They do not have everything for everyone. Even though they have a broader mission than I do, for example, than and that they're offering good cocktails, they're still saying, "Look, this is, this is what we do. This is our menu. This is our specialties." And you know, fortunately, at this point, guests are on board with that. Right. And guests come in and, and do want that. You the, know. There's the best. One of my favorite quotes of all time. And I might have said this in other interviews. Is Lemmy said, "Yeah, raise your flag, and see who salutes it." Yeah. And that's <laughs> it, man. Like putting your vision out there, putting your your feelings for aesthetic, your preference mm-hmm. for how to interact with people. I mean, these are your kids. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. And so you care for them in that same mm-hmm. kind of and way. A- yeah, absolutely. And and you do hope, and of course, if it doesn't work, if the if the response isn't there and the guests is guests aren't into it, yeah. then you have to adjust. Then you do have to change, and then you do have to reevaluate right. and say, well, maybe this isn't working and things. But, I mean, we were pretty adamant about how I wanted Smuggler's Cove to be, to get back to your point about... You know, curating. You were intentional. Yeah, it was very intentional, and I'm fortunate that it worked. I'm I'm very happy that it worked. It couldn't. It's very possible that it might not have. So, uh, it's not like I did focus groups or something. Well, no, of course (laughs) not. You get. How do you? (laughs) How do you draw on a whiteboard how to feel? Yeah. Right. Like you have to. It's got to be guttural and it has to be primitive and it's got to come from a place Mm -hmm. of passion. So, so I want to tie this all all back because obviously we've got so much to talk about in terms of rum and tiki, which this reemergence of this fascination and passion towards mm-hmm. tiki. But all of this kind of begins for you in Fairfax, California. You're California. Fairfax, California, yes. Uh, it is beautiful. Um, so where does this all start? I guess when, well, when I'm, I think um, the first thing that I talk about in the book is when I was a little kid and we, we would go to this restaurant in Santa Cruz yeah. called Zanzibar, which was a tropically themed space. And I don't remember anything. I had, I think, a little tiki bar in the back, but I was too young to be going to the bar. I had a little thatched roof bar. But the thing I remember was this fruit salad. That's what I got every time. Uh. Fruit salad is kind of a random thing to order as a dinner on. For <laughs> yeah. a, um, when you're, this explains a lot, though, I think. Yeah, but when you're, when you're whatever, I, you know, eight years old, give me the fruit salad. Um, but why I got the fruit salad was because it had this incredible presentation. They brought this, this big platter out and had a conch shell on yeah. it and all this fruit spilling out of the conch shell and making like a little fruit river. And, I mean, it was, it was my first introduction to dining as experience. Right. And this notion that it's not just food it's a bleh, on a plate. This is like somebody cared. Somebody yeah. 
crafted this experience. They almost painted it for you. Yes. Right. They painted this experience for me on a plate, and I was enchanted yeah. because I was eight and impressionable it's and everything else. colorful, but, right? But it's colorful, and it's, an, and it's yeah. an experience. I mean, you see it, I mean, even in modern restaurants, it's something that's really well-plated and beautifully done. It's, it's, it's just not, you know, slop for sustenance. Right. It's an experience. And this nice effort... And it was probably just shitty fruit out of a can. But it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't it, matter. It doesn't matter. It was they took how the it was, time. It was how, they took the time. Right. They made the effort. And they presented it beautifully. Yeah. So that was, that was fantastic. And that's what it sort of inspired me to go on. And then it was, yeah, while I was living in, while I was living in um, Washington, D.C. in college. And I was interning at this, um, at this embassy. Well, so real quick, because oh, this yeah, is a big job, yeah, right? Yeah, well, yeah. so okay, so, so first, because you you know talk about this nice curated mm-hmm. experience, you're mm-hmm. very interested when you talk about hospitality in the whole, which probably isn't even percolating in your mind today. Or no, no. your folks or anybody in the family kind of in that industry, something that might have planted the seed for you? No, not at all. Um, no, no, no hospitality in any anywhere in my family, which yeah. is interesting. I don't. They, they, my my parents are both. Um, my parents were both um, public servants. Oh, really? Um, my father was career city manager yeah. multiple cities in california my mother taught what's called o&m orientation and mobility which is uh spatial uh spatial uh education for blind people interesting how to wow. work in, in in environments and yeah. understand how to how to cane travel and things like that um so was it pretty like seeming coming from these different backgrounds was it an open upbringing in terms of sense like Culture's cool. Let's go explore. Let's go yeah, travel. Yeah, absolutely. A terrific, terrific childhood. Parents were wonderful and supportive and definitely took me to lots of museums, yeah. cultural events, and things like that. I think, um, you know, my, my father and I always got on very well, although he didn't understand what I was talking about at any time because <laughs> I was pretty young and somewhat precocious and into you know, science fiction yeah. and... Writing, reading, watching... All of the above. Yeah. Um, Anybody f- like d- to relate on a film level? What was something that kind of? What were films that were that yeah, made a really big impact early in my life? Um, it's a great way to visualize stuff. You know, it's <laughs> a good question. Let me think. Um, what was? What were some? Of course, you know, being a good child of the '70s. Of course, I was obsessed with Star Wars. Yes. Um, and Blade Runner too. Blade, Blade Runner. Runner. Yeah. Um, I don't think I saw Blade Runner quite just. See, wait, that came out in 81 or yeah, 82. Right, yeah. I was a little young. I didn't see it until later. So I would have been about nine yeah. at that point. I think Blade Runner would have been a little too much. <laughs> a little over my <laughs> head. A little, yeah, a, little, a little over my head. Star little. Wars and Empire were pretty easy to, to grok. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> to use a science fiction word. Um, <laughs> but um, I, uh, I I definitely enjoyed that, and I got into reading science fiction. Uh, really fell uh, in love with Bradbury, yeah. in particular. Oh, Ro- so real quick, yeah. do you have Amazon Prime? I do. Yeah. Okay, so I love Bradbury. Uh-huh. And I, he was Marshall Chronicles, one of my favorite books. Mm-hmm. There is a series. Do you remember this series in the eighties called the Ray Bradbury Chronicle, or is it Ray Bradbury Theater? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. It's on Amazon Prime. Oh, now. cool. It is obscure as shit. Yeah. There's no reason it should be on there, <laughs> but it is, and it's always cool to like go back and watch this, and it, as an adult, kind of reprocess those things you really bonded yeah. with when you're younger, you know. Nice. But being a creative type, then. You so you mentioned like theater and all of this, yeah. But also, you had was there a facet in politics as well? Um, I politics, uh, political studies started in college, yeah. And that was really only so. Um, well, I, well, to to catch up, I guess in, in through high school, like I said, it was a lot of sci-fi. I loved Doctor Who and Star Trek, and uh, The Prisoner had a huge impact oh, on me. Yeah, that's great. And um, and I um, I, I finished high school, and there were basically two things I wanted to do when I went to college. Um, well, number one, I had decided I was absolutely obsessed with becoming a, a, a funeral director. Was a f- How in the hell? <laughs> I left that out of the book, right? <laughs> How does that become a thing? I just thought, I found it to be the most, I started reading a little bit about, I think I started reading, which is not the, not the endorsement of the funeral industry, but I think I read <laughs> Mitford. And um, uh, uh, um, uh, American Way of Dying, yeah. and I, I got well. I was also a good goth too. Okay. So I mean, you know, that's see, I was you know really what I was trying goth, to say. Yeah, Martin, you were a goth, right? Yeah, the Pesh Mode side or Duran Duran side or the Cure side? Oh, Cure. Okay, got absolutely, it. perfect. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> and so you know, being a good eyeliner wearing, trench coat wearing goth kid, <laughs> I, I thought funeral directing was great. So 
I actually went to San Francisco College of Mortuary Science to no take kidding. a tour with their director um, to do kind of like a pre-admissions tour to yeah. learn more. And I was fascinated by it because it was it, uh, it's a little afield, right? But it, it, it taught you everything. So it was all this business management. Yeah. It was embalming. It was hair and makeup. It was um, uh, counseling, grief right. counseling. Holy crap. Um, it was... It taught you everything you needed to know to run your own funeral home. It's like a business degree in a way. It was. It's, yeah. yeah, it was. It was a two-year program, and you went to and you and it was a working mortuary that you that was doing it. Yeah. And so you did low-cost funeral. Basically, it was like getting a haircut at Barber College. You know, let the students embalm for like low-cost funerals. Right. Right. And um, the woman who ran the who ran the school was really interesting and I had a great meeting with her and I came back and I told my parents like this is it I think I found a really fascinating career wow. that I'm excited by and I think my mother was mortified <laughs> I suppose that's <laughs> a, use a, to, to, that's a great word to use a great word to use. <laughs> um, you know she said uh, no and I said what do you mean no what's wrong with this and she said I'll tell you what she said just go get a four-year degree Please, <laughs> just go get a four-year degree at a UC, and if you still want to do it, great. But just have a bachelor's degree under <laughs> your belt, and if you want to do it after that, terrific. Yeah. And you'll have at least a bachelor's, and you can fall back on something else if you don't want to do it. I said, all right. Good mom advice. That's yeah, good mom, mom advice. You know, I was a little grumbly at the time of about course, it. I was like, no, course. I just want to go do this. Anyway, so plan B, which is entirely a right turn, was that I wanted to... Uh, because I did a lot of theater uh-huh. in high school. And I really enjoyed not just the process, but I really also liked my instructor. And I thought, I want to teach high school theater. Really? That was where I thought. Um, because I, I think I, well, I knew even then I was like a very so-so actor and, and just wanted to. I liked the process of it. and D- I liked Directing? Is that a good word for it? Directing and, and yeah, just yeah. So directing high school and, and teaching, teaching high school sure. theater. So I thought, well, I'll go get a theater degree, then I'll get a teaching credential, and I'll just look for work in in, uh, high schools. Um, So I actually got into college on, as a a theater major, and I um, quickly realized, as much as I was enjoying it, I started to get a little nervous about whether or not there would be any theater programs left in high school. By the time I graduate, because it's always the first thing to get cut. Sure, the coaches end up teaching it, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Because you know, heaven forbid, you should cut football. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, let them hit. Well, back then we didn't know they were giving each other brain damage, but um, but it's always the band. It's always band, and it's always theater. It's, the it's good always stuff. the arts. Yes, always the arts that get cut in public high schools. So I thought, you know, I think I'm setting myself up to never find a job. Yeah. that's what I started getting afraid of. And it was one college advisor I had who was my advisor throughout who absolutely inspired me to learn more about um, political science. Sure. And he, uh, I had initially started thinking about taking Japanese and working in the Pacific Rim, and I did very poorly studying Japanese, <laughs> and then switched my interests to European studies. And so that's where I ended up finally getting a, politi- a oh, poli-sci degree. Any particular period of time or dictator that is of interest to you? Oh, no. My, all my focus was on the development and creation of the European Union, the post-war oh, development okay, of the okay. EU. In particular, the development of the single currency. That was, my, that was my degree and my focus area. Wow. So, yeah, I've taken about 300 right turns in my life. <laughs> Very random directions. But, but it's strange because if you think it... So, one of the things I realize I do when I'm mm-hmm. chatting with people on the show is I find these little kind of things that seem interstitial. They, they don't seem juxtaposed in a way, uh-huh. right? Yeah. But you like to direct. Yeah. You like to learn. You can write. Yeah. You like music and arts. Mm-hmm. You like people. Mm-hmm. Tell me what all this perfectly intersects at. Well, this is. <laughs> right. So you're getting to the great story in the book, which was um, after college, I had spent many years working in transportation logistics because that was the only real work I could find. Yeah. I had a very, I couldn't find any work in sort of in, in the political theater dealing with. Is that Maersk or Maersk, I yeah. was working for Maersk for a while, actually in Texas. In, no in fact, I lived in Houston. In fact, I was just meeting Bryce, a guy down here last night who works at Maersk in, in the Woodlands near Houston, where I used small, to work. Small, small world, man. Really small yeah. world. And um, so um, 
at one of these jobs, I got uh, one of these transportation jobs I had, I got laid off. And as part of my severance package, they included a kind of career counselor slash therapist sessions. Interesting. Okay. And so I met this woman and I said, and, and I poured my heart out to her. I told her all the things I'd always wanted to do, could do, couldn't do, career ups and downs, hopes, dreams, etc. I'm very good, very emotional, very cathartic. Is that, well, real quick, is that, is that a comfortable thing to do? To be yeah. able to be that transparent? Yeah, it was, it was good. Yeah. It was good. And, um, and, and, we, and we, we, we connected pretty well, and I told her all these things. And I said, you know, I, I had recently read something in a book, a terrific uh, little book, where the, the author had described himself as a professional amateur. Yeah. And I said, that's me. That's, that's, that's it. I'm a professional amateur. I'm good at a lot of things, but I'm great at nothing. You know, I'm yeah. not great at anything. I'm just good at things. And I don't have that one overarching thing that just grabbed me from 100 miles away. Like, man, I'm going to be an amazing pharmacist. This is perfect. This is what I want to do for a right, living. Right. And just reach for the ring and, and just go. Yeah. Never had that feeling. So I told her all of this. And, of course, at this time, now years later, all of this home enthusiasm and passion for tiki has been yeah. bubbling under the surface for several years have a home tiki bar and all this stuff and i told her um i said well look i'm just looking at my skill set i'm looking at my passions and my experience i do outside sales i'm good with people i like to engage with with guests right. or customers I, I i have a modicum of business acumen i have um a real passion for this tiki experience i do i'm i've done theater i can be kind of gregarious and demonstrative right right and i said all of these things circling together seem to me the perfect elements to become a tiki bar owner operator <laughs> and you're never going to get that advice you probably never said that to anybody else ever well, in your whole said, career. No, oh you I, said this, you this me saying it to her i'm you saying, told oh yeah to I, told her, I said i think i think i i think this would be perfect oh, for shit. Me. and she just went white and she's like oh boy no Wait, no. And no? I said, what? And she goes, I can't. And she said her quote was, I can't in good conscience suggest that you go open a bar. What the fuck? Really? Why? Yeah. No, she was just she just thought that that was irresponsible advice. Oh, that's so terrible. I know. So irresponsible. she thought it was very irresponsible to suggest because a bar still had this stigma right. of it being, you know, we're, you know, I don't know the dregs of society yeah, go, or some yeah. sort of old puritanical idea about what cocktail bars were, what was happening in drinking at that time. And she's like, have you, how about catering? Have you ever considered catering? That's a nice thing. And I That's said, a nuted version of owning a tiki bar. Basically. Yeah, I said, I, I, well, maybe, okay. Catering's got its moments, I suppose. I just don't, but I thought I sort of started to see myself more in this kind of mold, not exactly, but this kind of more Trader Vic-like mold of yeah. this larger-than-life impresario-style person running a Absolutely. running an experience curating experience right. for a guest and so um and so i just sort of shrugged and we our sessions stopped and and um and and then i just did it anyway <laughs> <laughs> um and uh i'd started i i had started tending bar and i just said look i mean I'm going to take a shot at this. My, yeah. I've got these great home bars. I love entertaining guests. I've never done this professionally, but I'm going to try to figure it out. And if it doesn't work, well, I can always go back to transportation and sure. shipping. I just, want to, I just wanted that sense of saying, oh, I tried. Yeah. I, I gave it a shot, you know, and I didn't want to have a life of sort of what, what ifs or wondering. Yeah, and, and so, I like that she brought, <laughs> unintentionally, Oh yeah. she brought you to the conclusion that it's formed and really... Re reimagined your life in a sense, you know. She did because it was that it was the 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 the, the output, the result rather of the conversation yeah, yeah. is that we're starting to the puzzles were starting to come together in my mind as I was talking about. I was like, I think I have all the middling skill. Now, yeah. of course, the real thing I needed to know and didn't know, and you know, until everybody to this day is, well, should I go get an MBA to own a bar? I said, no, you should apprentice as a plumber. Yeah, that's the most important <laughs> thing you can do. I like can tell actual you that right work. Now. Yeah, yeah learn to plumb because <laughs> it's a business entirely involving liquids yeah and liquids pipes break toilets back up sure. things leak anytime you have a business that involves water it goes to shit yeah at some point well that is a that is a legitimate parallel adjacent skill to have 
that oh, actually yeah. makes plenty of sense. Oh, I hired a bar back once. He's like, I've never bar backed in my life. And I said, what do you do? He said, I'm an apprentice plumber. I said, you're so hired. <laughs> you know, sweat copper pipe. You're in. <laughs> Oh, my God, this guy. (laughs) Massive skills. Exactly. Hey, can you stay late today? I'll pay you extra. (laughs) Just work on this. (laughs) An eye for talent. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Hey, someone flushed an iPhone today. Can you fish (laughs) it out of the toilet? (laughs) I've gotten gotten pretty good at snaking toilets, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I I can't imagine the things that you've gotten good at. How many years now are we talking, if if this was a retrospective Started started tending bar in, in 2004. 2004, okay. Yeah, and so that was the first time it became professional. Um, crazy about Tiki for 10 years prior to that. So from 94 onward yeah. was really where I, you know, I've been. So even I before had. you started professionally bartending, I, I have a feeling the historical pieces you already mm-hmm. knew about and you felt very, very uh, kindred. Nature. Absolutely. I started to connect with people at first locally and then ultimately around the world as early as 99, 2000 when we started, to, you know, online groups started yeah, and started yeah. to meet other like-minded Tiki files. And we started having this kind of same shared experience a lot of us about you know well i mean everyone had a little different some people were really passionate about mug collecting some people were passionate about cocktails right some people were passionate about the music all these different elements but it's when you realize that tiki or polynesian pop was this really multidisciplinary art form sure that there's painters carvers mug makers musicians and there's Very so rich. much it's extremely rich and it's like that's why it's like no other cocktail Thing in the world, we yeah. were just at this uh, bar. Um, oh, damn it! What's it called? Townsend? Oh yeah, Townsend. Mm-hmm. Townsend. Yeah, you do in your presentation. No, no, too. sorry, not the Townsend. Uh, that's where the presentation was. Uh, Roosevelt Room. Oh yeah, for the yeah. pre-party. And I was talking to someone about this. And I'm looking on their back bar, and they have this really nice menu. Yeah, it's beautiful. Like pre-prohibition, prohibition, post-prohibition, tiki, dark ages, modern. And I looked at. This, see, I said, now see all those columns, all those different eras. There's only one tiki that isn't just about cocktails uh-huh. it's an entire movement it's an arts movement it's a it's art and music and like the the let's say the the manhattan doesn't have an associated aesthetic oh that's example, a brilliant you know, point yeah the, the manhattan you know may have been served at these various places or the martini was served at these places but there's no music connected to them art connected to you're them. you're absolutely right it's singular yeah Tiki cocktails, exotic cocktails, are just one part of a larger thing, of a much larger thing. Yeah. A, a, a whole artistic arts and crafts movement that flourished in America for 30 years. Yeah. And so I, because I came up through it the other way, let me, bartenders are coming into today from the cocktails, and they're into the cocktails. Yeah. I came into it from the art and the aesthetic and the design. So those of us who are crazy about tiki, and uh, you know, if you go to Carolyn's, Carolyn Rob's house, right, right. right, and it's you know, it's remarkable. It's a beautiful home bar. Um, we love the art and the aesthetic and the imagery to go with our cocktails. We like it all to be part of the uh, of a whole. Well, immersive again. More immersive yeah. experience. The cocktails do not exist in isolation. I talk about. Uh, I'm veering off several no, no. topics, but I talk about um, uh, what's context mattering. Context matters. Yeah. Um, let's say I'm I'm at a beautiful New York bar. Let's say I'm at the Waldorf Astoria sure. bar, something like that, and I have an ice cold martini at the Waldorf Astoria bar, and maybe I'm a little gussied up. I got a suit and tie on. I'm feeling good. I'm yeah. in Manhattan. I'm having a martini at the Waldorf. That's context. And that's setting. And that's exactly where I want to be having an ice-cold, bracing yeah. martini at a beautiful, historic bar like that. Now, Smuggler's Cove can make you a flawless martini. It doesn't taste as good yeah. as it does yeah, at the Waldorf Astoria Bar. Sure. Flip side to that is Death & Co. makes a perfect zombie. I don't want to drink a zombie at Death & Co. Yeah. I want to drink a Manhattan or something. Yeah, right, Co. right. I, I want to drink a stirred and whiskey-ish and nicely boozy drink at Death & Co. or something and have that kind of sophisticated New York experience. Um, I say the best garnish, you know, Thatched Roof is the garnish on the zombie. You know, it's, it's, it's that, you know, zombies taste better yeah. under a Thatched Roof. And I think because it matters, the setting matters. I mean, when I go to the Mai Kai, I don't have a, I don't have a gin and tonic. I have, a, you know, I have an exotic cocktail yeah. in the place that was designed to be a temple for exotic cocktails or for this experience. So, context matters. It really does. Yeah, and 
Sorry to... No, go ahead. So, you put all this time, you mm-hmm. are spokesman for the culture in a mm-hmm. sense, whether, whether intentional or not. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about what may be a perceived responsibility to be at the helm of this tiki movement? Because it's hard to say that there, there are many other notable personalities, but yeah. some may argue that you are at the helm of this movement. Well, you know, there's a lot of people, when I think about the people who I look up to and things, when I think about people who... You know, when I think of somebody like, let's say, Sven Kirsten, who wrote Book of Tiki and yeah. Tiki Pop. Now, he doesn't get a lot of recognition in the cocktail community because, again, the cocktail community is focused on the cocktail. Sure. And he's the one who helped codify, created the term Polynesian Pop to define the art movement, helped codify and define the aesthetic and spell it out in several terrific books. Right. But a lot of modern, you know, bartenders don't know about that side or don't research that side or understand that side now on the cocktail side of course it's it's me but it's also of course jeff yeah and so and with jeff you know most most bartenders came to it through jeff's books and jeff's terrific research and so um so in many respects in the cocktail scene it would be jeff and myself frequently are as you say kind of at the helm of people who are turned to for advice and that's great and but so and, it, and, and because people had been turning to Jeff for advice for a long time and he was speaking about the drinks, I felt that with the book we had a responsibility because we had a platform yeah. and I was known among the bartender community audience. Sure. that it ha- I said, well, this is a responsibility of mine because they said, well, write a, t- write, a, write a book for Smuggler's Cove. Could have just done pretty pictures and cocktails. But I said, I feel like I have a responsibility to try to offer more of an explanation of what it all means. Yeah why America fell in love with it, where the look and the feel comes from, how we recreate the look and the feel. I wanted to make sure that the book was more than just recipes and pictures of drinks. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't expect anything less from you talking from Well, you know? <laughs> we, you know, it was a thing because when we, have the, we had terrific photographers, um, Dylan and Jenny, who do great modern work, and you'll see their stuff all over in Buy Magazine and, and several other books now. We were their first book, and the... In, in the modern cocktail world, and particularly in the photography world, the inclination, the aesthetic, is, mm. of course, to take the drink and photograph the drink in isolation sure. on a... Background's blurred. On a, just, yeah, yeah, background's blurred. Maybe it's on a little piece of reclaimed wood. Right. Or maybe there's a guy wearing a... You know, there's a guy drinking it wearing a, you know, a leather apron and, or, a, you know... A, <laughs> a denim, and he's holding a side of beef over one side. Right. A good beard. You know, you just know. a real, realistic settings. Yes, exactly. <laughs> So we had to push back on that, on, that, on that impulse to say, look, here's a Mai Tai, it's all by itself, yeah. and make every, virtually every single cocktail shot a bit of a still life in a diorama. Wow. With every, with, here's some cork floats, here it's next to a tiki mug, here it's next to rope or a barrel yeah. or everything else. We wanted to make sure, and it's basically, the photographs are basically a metaphor for what I'm trying to say. Don't, the drinks don't exist by themselves. Right. They exist in a world of art. A much larger, a much much larger context. Yeah. And so that's why every one of our pictures has menu art or something else. None of the drinks, really, mostly, are in any kind of isolation. Yeah. Because we, the, setting is, the setting matters. Context matters. It absolutely does. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's great that you're in town. We've got Texas Tiki Week that just started Monday. Yeah. There's a great tiki map of bars. It's something that this year feels bigger and more embraced than ever, which is killer, you know, that, that genre. Yep. And so you had a, a class or a seminar yesterday, uh-huh. and that's why you're in town. How did that go? Terrific. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. We had a great seminar. I got to follow uh, John Mulder, who's a really talented mug maker, which yeah. was great because, again, it was another example of, let me tell you a little bit more about the art. Right. And so he was able to get up and talk to the, the kind of the really skilled and, 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 and beautiful art of making tiki mugs, mm. um, you know, and pouring molds and, and slip casting and all these things. And I still don't really understand it all. It's, it's, a real, it's a real skill. And so he helped by having him there right in front of me. It helps, again, put an artistic context into the, into sure. the equation. So then I get up and talk about I did a broad talk about the whole history, where it comes from, why we fell in love with it, yeah. and about the aesthetic and the evolution of the design of these bars. So, a great crowd, very receptive, probably 60% enthusiast, 40% industry, yeah. maybe. That's pretty good. Um, maybe 30% industry. So, it was good to always, always good to have some bartenders in the room, too. And, um, and so, 
uh, it was really fun. And you're right. It's, it feels like Texas Tiki Week. Because I remember when it started. Yeah. First Texas Tiki Week. And I remember reading about it and going, but there aren't any tiki bars in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of laughing. I'm like, well, that's, a, that's, that's ambitious. Yeah, I think that's yeah. pretty exciting. So now, though, you're getting more traction. You know, you've got Lalo in Houston. Yeah. You know, there's a little bit more. There's actually some tiki in Texas, which is good. Because there used to be quite a bit in yeah. the 1960s, um, and, uh, up until basically the early 80s. There, really? were, there were several. Yeah. Multiple Trader Vicks, Donna Beachcomber locations, oh, yeah. uh, Ren Clark's Polynesian Village. There were, there were quite a few. Um, Fort Worth, Dallas, Houston. Not sure there was much in Austin. But, um, but it was here. Just yeah. like, and, 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 and every time I go to a new city, and I do a talk in Kansas City, or I do a talk in Reno or whatever, I always put in slides of places that used to be there because as we try to tell people how big this was, there's no evidence because it all got destroyed. Everything got raised or remodeled in the 80s. So it's like, that's why we think of it as a lost civilization. Wow. When it used to be everywhere, and now it's virtually nowhere. Now it's, of course, now it's... Well, now it's Re-emerging, back sure. Re-emerging. But, but every time I go to city, I say, look, here's 15 places that used to be in your town that you've never heard of. Especially yeah. I got bartenders in their 20s and 30s, and these places all closed before they were born. So, like, you just look, here's... Here, and, and people go like, whoa, that was... Oh, yeah, I know that street corner. That's a Taco Bell now or something or whatever right, right. it is. Um, you know, it kind of people are always like, I didn't know all that was here. And, it, and it's like, yeah, I know, because it's, it was wiped off the face of the earth. It was like it never happened. It was the, you know, the good taste police showed right. up and decried everything as tacky and wiped these things out. And, and that's why we have to, you know, helping to explain that this used to be everywhere is great. That's right. Let's us Ubiquitous you thing. Know. It's hard for us. We're not mm-hmm. familiar with that yeah. piece. Well, so, so I've, got, I've got three more questions for you. Hit me. And I know you And I'll probably say, uh, maybe I can shut up at some point. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I can shut I'm up I'm rambling too much. <laughs> no, no, it's good. It's good. So I love the OFTD. I was oh, recently cool. in Paris. And uh-huh. I was at Dirty Dicks. Right on. And like, you're from Texas? I'm like, yes. And he goes, okay. And they served my wife and I and everybody behind the bar OFTD nice. shots, which is not an easy shot. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't drink, <laughs> drink a lot of overproof stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But how, like... How do you feel to be one of the guys in the band that created this song? No, it was known as OFTD, It was man. such. We had such a good time. It was. It was really fun. It's that kind of the wonderful, mad genius of Alexander, who yeah. just said, you know, came to all of us and said, "What's missing? You know, what do you guys need yeah. in rum?" And we said, "Well, we need full-bodied, overproof, unapologetic rum." That's a good word for it. Yeah, unapologetic. It's not. It's not. It's rum that's proud to be rum. Sure, black flagish. Yeah. <laughs> so we said we need we need here's what we need. And we brought him a bunch of examples and I you know I think I brought a 1950s Lemon Heart. Jeff bought a Kahala Bay, which is a sadly gone rum now, recently discontinued product. And we tasted things and we just said, "Well, we want the funk. We want some Jamaican heft yeah, to it. Yeah. We want some Guyanese uh, richness. We want all these things to come together." And he said, "Great. Don't call us. We'll call you." And he disappeared with our samples and 6 months later he said, "Come Come to the chateau, Martin. <laughs> Come to the chateau. We'll make a... He doesn't talk like Marie Chevalier. I just like to imagine he does. And uh, we'll make some rum, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> he sounds like that. <laughs> um, but, we, but we, you know, we really, you know, and, you know, I don't know, you know the whole story, the sort of apocryphal birth of the name and all this. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not apocryphal. It really happened. But, yeah, it's, it's you know, it was, um, as we were tasting this really lovely blend of Jamaican Guyana rums, Dave Wondrich said, do you have any of that, some of that old, like, eight-year-old Barbados in the back? You could just put a touch in so we get a little more oakiness and a little of that nice, um, you know, sort of um, medium body sure. quality to it. He said, sure, and they came in, they took a little, little split, and we came back to taste it again. And Dave, like this, and he said, uh, oh, fuck, that's delicious. <laughs> and, uh, and Alexander and his, uh, and his uh, uh, right-hand uh, uh, Guillaume looked at each other, and they said, that's it. That's what we'll call it. Oh, fuck, that's delicious. <laughs> and I said, you can't call it that. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll figure it out. <laughs> you work backwards yeah. to kind of clean it up a yeah, little bit. Yeah, so I said, I'm pretty sure the TTB isn't going <laughs> to sign off on, oh, fuck, that's delicious. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> highly descriptive. Um, uh, you know, um, so, and so here this product comes out, old-fashioned, traditional, dark, OFTD. On the label, I was, I, it's funny, because I was totally, I was like, I just thought, oh, this is so corny. 
I, I was mortified. I really? Thought, I thought, this is a terrible idea. I really did. I didn't like the name at all. Yeah. And I, I was totally wrong because it has... It's resonated massively. It's resonated hugely. People love the story. Yeah. Uh, people think it's, it's fun. And, uh, and I'm glad because, yeah, I was just... I was a little too, I guess, I don't know, puritanical about sure. it. I was like... Raving, raving success. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, and it's a blast. Beautiful, beautiful, and people love it. And it's also a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a departure for them because it's the only, um, it's their only product without dosage. It's oh, the only oh, unsweetened no um, uh, plantation rum. Yeah, um, and uh, so it's you know, and as it's going to be finding its home primarily in exotic cocktails, which you know we'll be adding sugar anyway. Yeah. It's sort of a natural. Works perfect. Yeah. Um, so many, of their co- so many of their really beautiful long-age rums with the dosage are oftentimes enjoyed by themselves. Right. Um, OFTD is, is, I don't, you know, nobody really thought OFTD would be used by, you know, it's not really one for relaxing. I mean, I've had it many times on a big ice cube, and I quite yeah, like it. Yeah, if you dilute it a bit, for sure. Yeah, I like a big rock in it. And, um, but, uh, uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun to be involved with That's it. That's a crazy, pr- I mean, it's really, really cool. All right, mm-hmm. so... I asked this question of all the guests, but I'm asking it a little bit different for you because you and I really, I think we both like goth music a bit. I, you can call it different. You can call it new wave. You can call it right, whatever, right? right? Um, been listening to a band actually recently, which I can't even remember the name of it. But there's lots of great stuff from the Brit, like from the Brits in that that period. You know? uh-huh. So, you are at any bar in the world, doesn't matter where. Yeah. You're sipping a fine tiki cocktail. Yeah. And you could sit and have this cocktail with any gothic new wave band member <laughs> who might you like to just sit down chill and have a conversation with who would i love to sit down and drink with i might say i might say martin gore oh my gosh um man. because i think it would be fun because i'm also a little bit of a synth nerd and yeah. i think it might be fun to dork out on electronic sound of synthesis and early uh, keyboards and talk about just kind of the the early days in the 80s of working with you know some pioneering equipment and stuff like that and i think that'd be fun because he's clearly someone who is definitely as enraptured with the technology as he is with the music that's right i think that might be fun he's kind of he's kind of a weirdo so i don't know if he's much of a conversationalist but he i seems, think it'd be I, good with, I, with some drinks in yeah yeah exactly you know i think it's uh i think it'd be uh, i think that's the first person that springs to mind that's amazing um, yeah, I would. Yeah. Him and Dave, they've gone to. I'd, I'd like Absolutely. To you know, but he's gone cool. clean now. But yeah, that's true. He's not drinking. But I was like, I keep, somebody, you know, like he was dead for three minutes. I keep saying, nobody, nobody is appreciating the fact that he's a zombie. No, he's literally I, the walking dead. <laughs> Remember, he died. Yeah. And nobody seems to care. Like, this guy's like, you know, brains. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're here yeah. next week? Oh, Demo's here yeah, next week? I'm going to nice. see him on Thursday. Good. It's set list. This tour is excellent. Is it good? At least what I've read. I don't. I didn't manage to get tickets for... It's uh, so damn so. expensive, man. It's, it's really, really crazy. Expensive. But that's, that's yeah. brilliant. Martin Gore, yeah. I completely I yeah. get that. The last question, then, is yeah. that you've had this deep passion for Tiki, which now I understand is because of the cultural ramifications, the richness, and the many facets of it as an mm-hmm. art form. Mm-hmm. Do you see yourself ever able... To love another genre of spirit in that same way. Well, I mean, I definitely expressed a love for gin with Whitechapel, sure. and we definitely, and I wanted again to do the same kind of um, immersive experiential thing. Yeah, and that's why we you know, make it look like this imaginary abandoned tube station, Victorian era tube station, and it's all you know, it's all just a big, it's very contrived. Yeah, uh, but in a fun way because you know, rum. On the face of it, rum at least tends to telegraph a good time as a spirit. It sort of projects already, even if it's people maybe not taking it very seriously right. in the spirit. Rum already projects lots of images in lots of people's minds, particularly beaches and sunshine and sure. relaxation and the tropics and all these things. So gin does not. No, it's very <laughs> pensive. Yeah, gin's very pensive. Maybe, you know, in your best case scenario you might think of gin as being very serious right uh worst case scenario oh it's stuffy or an old man thing and i thought well you know i don't see gin like that at all i see gin as extraordinarily lively incredibly flexible i don't have to tell you yeah um diverse i like i think gin um becomes it's real alchemy in gin in yeah, a way that's a great point. not just in the manufacture of gin because as, as you well know when you put all those things together Sometimes the output is totally unexpected. Oh, yeah. Or when you're doing a steep and boil, like, how these two things really fought each other during sure. this part. And maybe we should try a little different this way. 
But then not only is the actual manufacturer of the gin kind of fascinating in what happens, but it's what happens when you mix with it too. Gin in cocktails to me is just transformative because yeah. it makes in a drink everything, all the ingredients taste different. It doesn't taste like you make a great, you know, you make a great uh, a margarita, right. right? Or make a, uh, what's, what's, what's tequila taste like in a great margarita? It tastes like tequila. Yeah. You know, it tastes like tequila and lime. It doesn't become, gin in cocktails becomes something else. And the other ingredients become something else. Right. The savoriness of the botanicals and the, the aromatics transform the whole thing yeah. until you don't feel like you're just drinking gin and other ingredients. You feel like you're drinking... It's totally... You feel like you're drinking a glass full of almost unidentifiable ingredients. Right. Like really, it's it it's so interesting what it does to drinks, and how you come up with a great drink. And this is you've you've spoken with Alex and Alex, our beverage director, who came up with all of our modern drinks at Whitechapel. We would be testing them, and I'd look at the recipe and say, "This looks great. What a cool idea! This recipe looks doom, 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 doom. Yeah. And then we drink it. We go, eh, "Yeah, it's not working. It's unpredictable." And then he's like, "What? Well, too much of this? Too much of that?" I said, "It's the gin." It's the gin. This is yeah. the wrong gin for yeah, this drink. Yeah. This drink, this gin is too heavy on the cardamom or something. Yeah. Let's try something that's a little more focused on a base notes. Maybe it's got a little more cassia or maybe a little bit more orris or something. Mm. And then you go, oh, there it is. That's what was, you know. And sometimes it's just a lot of trial and error. But that's why all the drinks use different gins because it's really been, you know, we have 120-odd cocktails on the menu at Whitechapel. Yeah. And I don't even know how many gins... I can't imagine. Use, I don't know. It takes at least 30 different gins to make the menu. And we, we um, you know, th- they've all been, everything has had thought in it. Every reason, every gin is there for a reason. Right. And my bar manager, Megan, and Alex really carefully think about everything that they do when they do new drinks. And they think this works with this or this doesn't. Yeah. It's a really thoughtful process and it does take a lot of trial and error. And that's, so anyway, so that's. So that's what's fascinated me about that. Um, I don't think there's any other... I've given a lot of thought because people think that I'm on a train to keep doing more to keep doing more single spirit right. projects. But honestly, I don't see that happening. I'm not... I, I think a lot of people execute tequila and whiskey focused places very well already. And I don't feel any urge. I just felt like gin needed it. And of course, obviously, rum really needed, um, you know, a hero. And... Uh, and I love seeing more and more places yeah. do it. Um, you know, there's more and more like, um, you know, some place like Rumba, which has up in Seattle, which has a terrific selection, a knowledgeable team and stuff, and also realizes that Tiki, just like with Smuggler's Cove, Tiki is Tiki is 30 years of a three-century-old spirit. You don't need to be a Tiki bar by any means to be a great rum bar. Yeah, there's lots of there's lots of room for exploration in terms of the aesthetic and the kind of maybe the kind of food you pair and the way it's decorated, but because rum is telling such a broad story. Sure. There's lots of ways to present it. Well, I mean, this is, it's been a great chat, man. I've, 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 My I've, pleasure. It's been really cool to just understand this story, and I, I really have a fondness for rum. It's something that runs deep in my heart, as it does with gin and yeah. maybe a few other things. But yeah. I want to summarize it and say that you're a thoughtful, thought-provoking dude. Well, thank you. That's very and nice of you, sir. I think that you've really helped the narrative of Tiki. I think you've helped enlighten people. You know, it's a great, it's a great thing, man. Yeah, there is a bit of a yeah. You're right. I mean, there is there's a bit of a mission, I suppose. And at least, uh, fortunately, now I've got a, a three pound doorstop that's you know helps uh, <laughs> <laughs> tell the story, tell folks it's great for tenderizing chicken too. That's that thing's right. a it's a little tank. Multi. Uh, purpose yeah exactly <laughs> well i hope to see you soon and i would love to grab a tiki drink with you someday that's kind of for me like it firms everything up comes yeah, full yeah. circle but also i also lastly want to see your return to being a mortuary <laughs> yeah i haven't ruled it out yet soon enough yeah <laughs> it's not too late <laughs> tiki themed funeral party <laughs> what says good times like you know <laughs> best soundtrack in the world i bet it, it'd have to so. well, there's there's a good there's a good uh sketch in there somewhere there is there's gotta be <laughs> thanks so much for chatting martin cheers Mike. safe travels thank you much well there we have it mr tiki himself mr martin kate san francisco smugglers cove white chapel dedicated to rum dedicated to gin in town for texas tiki week texas tiki week bringing some fine personalities into austin texas houston dallas some of these great places to 
hang out, celebrate rum, celebrate the artistic and cultural ramifications of Tiki, the Polynesian funk, if you will. And it's great just getting to see where Martin comes from, you know, a sci-fi guy, a music guy, a goth guy, talking The Cure, Depeche Mode, all this stuff. I see a lot of similarities between he and I, except he's really, really done something with this Tiki thing, don't you think? So thanks, everybody, for listening to Shoulda V with Mike G. No matter how excited you are to see the new Blade Runner movie with Ryan Gosling, or if you're thinking, man, I wish they'd make a new season of Futurama, please keep dancing.